Ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to the little podcast that is exposing the truth of revolutionism day by day. And we focused on the French Revolution, rather those events which led to the founding of France for very good reason. And today uh, we are honored once again to have Monsieur with us, who I will introduce presently. And he will today discuss the cornerstone of the Kingdom of France, which is the Christian religion as exemplified by a true feminist. Now, when I say true feminist, what do I mean? Those of us today deal with the third wave feminists who scream and break things and who it isn't clear exactly what they want, whether they want to be men or to exterminate men or to upset the order. This is say nothing against true femininity. Uh, Women are beautiful, but it is not legitimate, may I say, femininity. Legitimate femininity, as in everything legitimate, is to be found in the past. And on that note, I welcome you sure again to the program. Thank you for joining us today, sir. Thank you. We're very pleased to hear you again today. We are pleased to have you on board, as always. And we are doing a critical topic today. And so I shall turn it over to you because the people need to know this and they need to know it now. I think it's very important that we should be talking a little bit more about Joan of Arc because that's a figure who is very central to all the French um people and um, dear to to them all of them now we talked already about Joan of Arc in the past in our previous episodes but I had the impression that uh, maybe we should go deeper into the matter because there are so many things to say about this magnificent most extraordinary young lady yes who was able to uh, turn um a losing situation into a winning situation for the legitimate king of France. And their mission, in, in a very simple words, a mission was God's mission to bring back the legitimate king on the throne of France. And of course, I can develop these, uh, this um, in our conversation. Indeed. Now, if I may, just for the audience, let me play the American for a moment, which I'm quite good at doing. Um, I will say... I think of Joan of Arc. I know she was uh, a, a farmer girl in our in our terms. She was from a, a small town. And so the story goes, uh, she led an army and she yes. defeated the English. And so yes. that had something good to do for France. That's, I would say what most Americans, if they even know the name anymore, I'm not even sure if any people are learning about her because in history books, for example, we don't even learn about the Hundred Years' War generally anymore. Did you know that, Monsieur? Uh, I, I, I agree with you, but to come back to this particular point of yes. knowing her or not knowing her, yes. America may not be aware of what she did, but the French certainly do. Although, of course, in history books today, they don't. we don't talk much about that major figure. Now, you may not have heard about Joan of Arc in, in America, but I can tell you that in the past you did because... There was this famous um, singer, uh, Cohen, Leonard Cohen, who, song of, who, who sang a very beautiful song about her. Now, 
going back in the past, if you look at the 19th century, there was Ver Verdi, the, you know, the opera. Um, yes, the Italian writer. opera. He wrote, yes. he wrote something about Joan of Arc, if I'm not mistaken, although I haven't checked all the details. But I think the way he portrayed uh, Joan of Arc was very different from the real Joan of Arc. And if you go back into history and much uh, further in the past, you think of Shakespeare, who also wrote about Joan of Arc, and he portrayed her uh, um, as uh, some form of, sat I may be wrong because I read it such a long time ago, but the way he portrayed Joan of Arc had nothing to do rea with reality. But in fact, he was siding with the English at the time, thinking that she was diabolical and because she was wearing men's clothes. And that's what she did. It's true she was wearing men's, men's clothes. But of course, we can easily understand why she was doing that. She was doing yes. that because that was the only way for her to get accepted among males and soldiers and rather rough, uh, rough characters, you see. Exactly. And it just occurs to me, sir, that today women in America, I don't know if you know this, the draft has been enlarged, although there is officially no draft. Officially, there really is. Um, women will now be drafted along men and wear the uniforms of men. So you see, oh, it, yes, if you look yes. at any, yeah, women soldiers now dress like men. So I guess that would put Joan of Arc wow. in excellent company with G.I. Jane. Yeah, well, well, you see, this is a very interesting point. I didn't know that. Of course, I knew that there were some females in the army at all levels in the hierarchy, certainly. And that quite proficient. I'm not saying anything. Oh, they are. <laughs> they are very, very proficient. And most of the time, they are more intelligent than, than we are. Yes. But the thing is, for Joan of Arc, it was a matter of life and de or death. Because uh, during uh, the trial at the end of, of her uh, uh, days on this, this earth, uh, one of the main, uh, because the, 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 the court, who was very much on the side of the English, these were bishops and uh, clerics, but they were, uh, of course, all in favor, favor of the illegitimate uh, king of France, who would have been Henry VI. And so oh. all these clerics uh, were denouncing her for wearing uh, these men's clothes because they couldn't find anything else to say about her because all her answers was all her answers were, were so good and so indeed um, so subtle you see so that brings me to to the something i'd like to talk about which is the something we um, we talked about a little bit but not not, not enough i guess uh, which is her upbringing, in a sense, the yes, way she was brought exactly. up. She was, she was a shepherd. She was living in a very small family. She, I don't know whether her father was a farmer, maybe not a farmer, but anyway, they had some cattle and they had some sheep, and she was uh, looking after the sheep, okay? And she was, apparently, she was a good seamstress too. But when she was only 12 years old, she heard voices, and of course, that will be a point of contention at the court when she will be judged, because what were these voices? Were they satanical or were, not, were they not satanical? Yes. Well, apparently she, and that's very interesting because I, I tried to understand that uh, lately, recently. Yes. Voices in question were three saints who were talking to her, starting from 12 years of age. Now, these saints, are very famous saints, by the way, Saint Michael, Saint Catherine, and Saint Margaret. And I'd like to develop this a little bit because I think it's very much to the point. 
please do. Now, through, through the saints, uh, through these particular saints, God was uh, instructing her for a mission. Yes. God's mission was to send her to try and turn things uh, uh, down, uh, to, to, for the benefit of the, of the legitimate king. So she had to be instructed. She had to be taught. It was going to take five years of a, of a life to be instructed. And the voices were providing all the information she needed for a future career as a warrior, as a, which is incredible. So it is, and, but it's not without precedent. Um, if we look at the scripture, Monsieur, God seems to prefer working through people. Uh, rather than doing major acts himself. It's, he, it's a relationship. It, he works it's through people for people. And I, I want to point out also, I just realized King Henry VI, this is very, this is in the late 1400s, almost 1500, when the British left the church and began their schism. So yes, there's, yes. there's very clear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, there was a very strong message here. And we'll have to come back to that a Indeed. bit later. Please. So coming back to St. Michael, this is the first of the three saints he was hearing the voice of. The Archangel? St. Michael, Michael has been uh, dubbed as the patron of the French, um, of France, of the Kingdom of France, you see. And he's this the, is the Archangel we're speaking of, correct? Yeah, we're talking yeah. about the Archangel, yeah. St. Michael. Who put he's Satan into hell. Yes, and actually, the archangel was the chief of the heavenly hosts, they yeah. say. So he was instructing her on the uh, soldiers, uh, uh, the way to, f the, how she should be fighting, for example, how she should command the troops, because that's what she did later on. So yeah. she got first-hand first knowledge through the archangel, St. Michael. So that I think that's very interesting uh, to, to point out. So she, he was he was definitely teaching her how to fight. And the second voice she heard is very interesting too. It's Saint Catherine. Now Saint Catherine apparently have been of Siena. No, of course not, because Saint Catherine of Siena that would be later, I think. Oh, that's right. That's right. We're too early for that. Would be a little bit later. Um, I may be mistaken, but I think, yes, it's a bit, not so much later, but a bit later, I would say. I'm not so sure, but I, anyway, it was yeah. St. Catherine of Alexandria. Now, it's also very interesting to consider that because that particular saint was uh, very good at talking people over to her cause, particularly she had to confront 60, apparently from what I've read, 60 philosophers at the court of a pagan emperor named Maximianus. Maximian or Maximianus? Max, yeah, Maximian. This was towards the end of the Roman Empire, towards the collapse. Well, uh, apparently from 286 to 305. Yes. I've checked that. And so, uh, while well, that particular uh, emperor was a pagan, but he got really, uh, he, he fell in love with, with St. Catherine. But she was so good at talking and she had to confront 60 philosophers and all of them apparently decided to convert after she talked to them. Now, of course, she never wanted to marry uh, that pagan emperor who, who was already married, by the way. Huh? Yes, he was and not a nice he man, Maximilian. By that, anyway, he wanted to marry her, of course, and put her on the throne with him. But he, she refused that particular uh, proposal. And as a result, she had to suffer because she was tortured to death, apparently. And uh, she's also known as the martyr of the wheel. 
because I think she must have been crushed by some wheels. I, I, I think she was, she was tortured to death on a wheel. This, um, it, for the audience, um, some of us, including myself, didn't know too recently, Alexandria was a hotbed of, we spoke before of schisms, of, uh, of the, yes. uh, the heresies. The uh, Alexandria was a hotbed of that. And we also have St. Athanasius, uh, who is active in Alexandria, who was a root of orthodoxy. So this was a very, um, this was one of the key battlegrounds of early Christianity. Oh, really? Yeah, yes. very good. So this, this particular saint played a very important role in the life of Joan of Arc. And it's interesting to see that there's a parallel between the two lives, because Joan of Arc never married, of course, and she refused all proposal. Now, if we are to believe Shakespeare, she would have married uh, Henry VI. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And in yeah. Verdi's uh, opera, she's also going to marry somebody. But that, that doesn't make any sense. Well, Verdi was very much anti-Christian. Sorry to interrupt, kids, but yeah, Verdi, anyway, yeah. Saint Catherine seemed to have played a very important role for her, and she was a, a philosopher. She's the patron of the philosophers, and she's also, as you probably know, the the patron of young maidens who would like to marry and who are over twenty-five. It's yeah. been a tradition in France for many for for, for quite a long time. Until and recently. Have, yeah, yeah, to have this uh, particular. Uh, St. Catherine, and um, she's very well known in France. So that was a, the second um, uh, saint uh, whose voice were uh, talking to her. And that the third one is interesting too, because it's a totally different uh, saint. Apparently, St. Margaret was the third voice she was hearing. Now, who was that St. Margaret? There was a big discussion around that, because some people, well, the English in particular, wanted to know whether that particular saint was speaking English. And she oh. said, absolutely not. So she was not speaking. So everybody thinks now that it was Saint Margaret of Scotland. I don't know whether you've heard ab about that saint. I've not. She was also Queen of the Scots. And she was a very pious Catholic, apparently, you see. So she was talking to her. So there you have a very interesting combination of uh, the Archangel um, St. Michael providing the, uh, all the information about the war. Then you have the, uh, the, the debater, the philosopher with St. Catherine, and she has to be uh, uh, very much aware of the arguments, you know, and she yeah. has to be able to talk and, uh, and confront, uh, particularly during her trial, all these French judges who were very biased about her, you see. So yes. Catherine certainly played a very important role. And what uh, uh, Joan of Arc says is that when she hasn't got an answer, when she's, she's in doubt, while well, she listens, she, she decides to go away and listen to her voices and to, to get the right answer, you see. Uh, and St. Margaret, of course, is providing information about the court. If she had been the queen of the Scots, you certainly know a lot about the the court uh, manners, you see. Again, yeah, sir, for me, this is a practicing Catholic. This has the unmistakable signature of, of God on it. And I want to invite our audience to consider this. You can dismiss this and you can say that this peasant girl uh, was an abnormality, if you will. And you could say these things. But if you, if you believe in God and you, then you're obliged to believe in his acts. And this is what we're studying. The implications are awesome. The, the God of the universe selected the archangel Michael to instruct this French peasant girl 
that yeah, is incredible, isn't that it? is incredible and the the implications are too and joan of arc exhibited every sign of divine inspiration that a fact that a peasant girl like that could carry on with lawyers who had been trained years and years and years is yes. is remarkable and they were baffled they didn't know how to answer her because she was getting the the best out of you know she was uh, answering better than they pro probably would have done themselves yes and you know that afterwards when there was the you know that uh, joan of arc was finally uh canonized or, or beatified in 1920 yeah 1920 500 years after her death i think this this girl this peasant girl could not it seemed, could not have done that by herself if she had not been instructed how could she possibly have done what she did it doesn't seem uh, it doesn't make any sense because if you're a shepherd in a very small village why do you want to bother to go on a horse and fight for the king you have never heard of almost although the don remy area was a, a, a little enclave between english territories you see yes and th at this time what we think of as modern day france was occupied i would say probably about half of the country the northern western part was occupied by the english so the yes. french they were they were losing they were fighting a very they were fighting a losing war when Joan of Arc came along. Now, if you look at the map at, uh, of the, at the time, you mm. had the, the north of France, which was really conquered by, with, with some islands that were not, I guess, but also Aquitaine in the south, south southwest. Aquitaine the, with the Black Prince. You see? Yes. So that was all. So you see, the, the only area which was vital for the, for the little king of Bourg, as it was called, the future Louis the Seventh, uh, not Louis, uh, Charles the Seventh. Yes. The only area which had to be defended at all costs was Orleans, Orléans, precisely where she t t turned the tide. You see. Yes. And so to be able to do that, it, it's it, she must have been inspired by God, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to do that. And also to talk all the uh, soldiers and the king to accept her as the main commander of the, of these, um, the, the soldiers and of the army, that's uh, an impossible task, I guess. Anyways. And if we so, just for a moment think, if yes. Orléans had fallen, then the kingdom no, actually, of France. Never, never, no, 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 Orléans had not fallen. No, if, if it were to have, to fall. if so, the British had won, if Joan of Arc had not, St. Joan of Arc had not come along, then the kingdom of France may well have fallen. And oh, definitely, definitely, because you know why? Because they would have been able to cross the Loire and go into the south of France and they would have conquered the whole of France. Beside the army, the Charles VII's army was a very small army and he yes. had not much money either, you know, to support the soldiers. Although no, the soldiers, the again, the just like King Clovis, Monsieur, yes, just like King Clovis, here we have another event where the kingdom of France saves Western civilization by a hair. By a slim chance. Oh yes, absolutely. You know, so, I think God intervenes always in the same manner. When things seems to be impossible, when things are really desolate, and the yes. French kingdom kingdom was in a very poor state at the time, and everybody thought that the English would conquer France definitely, and 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 this is when God intervened through that particular shepherd who was an educated again who made such miracle. And who defeated uh, uh, an army much 
an army far greater than hers. And on that note, uh, hoping for divine intervention, we will take our first break and uh, we shall come back in a few moments. And I'd like to ask you, Michelle, when we return, if you saw Joan of Arc, what kind of person do you think she would be? And I'm curious, let's let's try to meet her. And well, <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. Um, once again, please visit our website, www.fleurdelys-club.org. And we shall return after the break. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We were talking before the break about, well, if you were to meet Joan of Arc, what kind of person do you think she would be? A peasant girl um, raised, raised up by saints to lead the army of France against the English and so fulfill the will of God. What kind of person would this be like? And I thought in my mind, she would remind me, I think, of an emergency room doctor. You wouldn't notice her unless you needed to. She wouldn't help you unless you needed it. But when she did, it would be effective. She's, she's a very pragmatic. I, that would be the word. And I would have liked to meet her. I wish to God that we had her in our world today. Uh, Monsieur, would you agree with that thought? Um, oh, 100%. Yes, yeah. we, are, we should have Joan of Arc today with us. Oh, yes. So what I've just been referring to are the voices she heard. And it's very important because these voices played a major part in her life, in her preparation uh, to go and fight for the legitimate king but also um, till the end of her life, she heard these voices, you see. Uh, yes. Until she was burnt at the stake, she heard the voices. Um, and she never, never changed her story. This is very important too, because even when the English tried to force her to, to renege, to change her story, she would never change it. It shows her determination and the fact that it must have been true, otherwise she, she would have... Uh, 
been afraid, but she, of course she was afraid as a human being, she was afraid of dying, but she never changed her story and she kept to her words, you see. Her yes. role, her main mission, as I've told you in the beginning, was to try and prepare for the return of the legitimate king. So, what I would like to talk about now is precisely the encounter she had with the future king of France. Yes. Because I think it's very interesting to look at this as well. Now, what happened is that she had to cross uh, enemy territory. She was riding a horse. She had a very small uh, band of soldiers uh, riding with her. There were only six or seven at the start, you see. And she, I don't know how she possibly, I, I was wondering how she managed to cross the uh, enemy lines, but she did, you know. And uh, she finally arrived at the castle where the king was staying for a few days in Chinon. And it's an interesting uh, episode here because it marks, um, that's where her, her career starts really, because first she had to convince a local lord that her mission was uh, really inspired and she wanted to help the legitimate king, but he didn't believe her all that much. And that's actually, I'm reading uh, some of my notes here, it was on March the 8th. Uh, now she met the king on March the 8th, 1429. This is the exact date apparently. And it's an interesting episode because you'll see what happens. The king had heard about her. Now you have to remember that at the time there were plenty of prophetesses, you know, maids or, um, or people were trying, trying to predict the future. And yes. so oh, Nostradamus well, was around during this time, I believe. Sorry, sorry. Nostradamus, the the. Ah, um, Nostradamus. Was he? Was he? Or I think right around this time. No, I would have thought it was. It was under Francis the first. That's a bit uh, later. A bit later. Yeah. Yeah. From you. It's a little bit later. Anyway, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, so she met the king, but before meeting the king, the king had heard about her, and he was not so sure about. Uh, first, he was not sure about anything really because. His mother uh, was putting him down all the time, and you know that she had signed the Treaty of Troyes. This particular treaty was a treason. It was a betrayal because with this particular treaty, the legitimate, the legitimate king was discarded in favor of the English prince. So this treaty was not acceptable to any royalist in France at the time. But anyway. So uh, Joan of Arc met the, king, the future king. She called him the meek dauphin, the gentil dauphin. But as he was not sure about her, he had decided to dress uh, and to be uh, among the courtiers incognito. Ah, that's that right. Very, that was a, a trick on his part, you see. And if we are to believe what is written in the books, she went straight away to him in the, in the middle of the court, uh, the, uh, among all the courtiers, she found him straight away. So afterwards, they, they had a private conversation. And in that particular conversation, I've been to Chinon, I've been to the castle, I've seen the place actually. Really? Yeah, it's a, there's a small dungeon, you know? Yes. It's not a big, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a nice castle, a fortified castle, of course. Um, there are some nice remains, and the city of Chinon is known all, all over France for that. But uh, in that castle, she talked to him. So they decided to have a private conversation. Now, we have to remember that the king, as I've told you, this uh, Dauphin, was not sure about anything, particularly 
as his mother was telling everybody that he was not a legitimate son, he wasn't in great Good doubt. God. He so, didn't think he was, the, he was wondering whether he was the legitimate uh, prince or whether yet, he was a bastard. I think it behooves us to remember though, even though he had this wicked mother doing these things, he must have been a smart man to have invented the disguise in the first place. So he must. He was, he was a smart man. Yes, yes absolutely. And Joan there of Arc. There are some shady areas too. Some some areas where I'm not quite sure about what he did. But like for example, apparently uh, at the end of his life, why why didn't he try to rescue Joan of Arc while when she was on trial? Yes. This is an area where I'm not quite sure about. But anyway, he was dressed incognito. She met him. She found him straight away in the crowd which astonished everybody. Then this is before photographs. No one, I mean, this would, been, this would have been a person who she had no idea what they looked like. It would have well, been impossible. There were, there were no photographs. Um, yeah. and, and as she was a poor little girl, she never had seen a portrait of the kid. Of yep. the sure. So during that conversation, apparently, she told him things that nobody knew. And in particular, this is very important she told him that he would be king of france and she also answered the prayer he had made to the lord because he in that prayer apparently he was asking the lord to know whether he was a legitimate prince or not and if he was not he was ready to be considered as a as a victim for the for the for the for the people of France, you, you see? And yes. she talked to him and she convinced him and that was the first miracle, really. There were two miracles there. First, she recognized him and then she told him things that nobody knew. So, of course, she had to be inspired to be able to do that. Then, that raises a number of issues because at the time, you know, people were very much concerned about satanical uh, yes. possessions. And what the king did at that time he had he decided to have her examined by theologians and by midwives oh for the witches mark they were trying to find that mark on her body that was supposedly oh I, yeah possibly yeah, possibly yeah. Then, no they wanted to first they wanted to see whether she was a virgin or not yes of course then afterwards they interrogated her they questioned her on theological issues and that's where it's very interesting to know that she had been instructed about all this so she was able to provide the right answers. They found that she was a virgin, that she was absolutely pure. There was nothing wrong about, about her. So as a result of the examination, the king accepted her as a definite uh, prophetess, you know, and uh, she was telling him that he would be king and uh, something he, he was not even sure of himself because uh, he was wondering whether he was legitimate. And then after that, he didn't know whether he would be able to reconquer his uh, the, the kingdom. His father had died already, you see, so he was yeah. the, he should have been king already. But then the thing is, the main point uh, in the arguments uh, provide, um, said by uh, Joan of Arc was that he should be crowned in Reims. And that's very important because if we discuss Reims, yes. Yeah, coronation means sa sacredness. Yes. And uh, the now, intervention of God. Well, so, we talk about the inter intervention of God, sir. I wonder, yes. now, I, forgive me if I bring up a sensitive subject. But there must have been some people in France who were collaborating with the English. Well, yes, the Burgundians. Yes. yes. So the, the French nation I really... Go back, 
kind, yes. Yes, so I mean, this was, this was is it France and the future of it was on the edge of a knife. It was not. On the, yeah, absolutely. And it could have tipped one way or the other. Yes, please continue. So, uh, that was, these were the first uh, mir miracles or feats, you know, things that were incredible that she managed to do. Now, she made three requests, and I would like to read these requests to you. I've translated them into English. Um, th three requests uh, were made at the time, and the king didn't listen or didn't give an answer to them. But it's interesting to have a look at what she asked. Please. She, so, first request, she wanted the future king to entrust his kingdom to the king of heaven. And following that donation, the king of heaven would do for him what he had done for his predecessors and reestablish him in his royal uh, seat, as, as in the old times. Now, that particular request where the king wants to entrust his kingdom to, to the Lord was not uh, accepted or he didn't answer. Now the second request is interesting too. You see, that's why you can see that Joan of Arc had a very good um, instruction in the faith. She asked him, she said to him, forgive those among you who have turned against you, Majesty, and who have feigned you. So there she's asking for his forgiveness. Even yes. if people have been uh, doing evil things against him, he should pardon them, you know? Yes, remarkable. That, that's, that's a very Christian uh, request. Especially and coming from a guerrilla fighter who's a little girl. I mean, this is, this is <laughs> at odds with the character, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's an incredible request. And the third request goes in the same vein. She says, Majesty, be oblivious of your greatness and be compassionate for all those rich and poor who will implore your forgiveness and beg favors from you, welcome them in a state of grace, whether or not they had been your friend or foe in the past. That is now, stunning. Now, do you think this is amazing on the part of a 17-year-old girl? Who's a guerrilla fighter to begin with in the 1400s. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that she would ask such a thing. I, I like her image. She was I, not a guerrilla, honestly. She was not a guerrilla. Oh, no, I know, I'm being facetious. She was, she was a, she was a, she was, uh, uh, in my mind, she's like the Archangel St. Michael. She's of that well, vein. Today I she, wouldn't compare it to a gorilla. That's true. I can but, your, uh, your, uh, well, she must have fought. I mean, in many respects, she would be like a special service soldier today. She was. Oh, yes, she was, absolutely. She, absolutely. Was, she was highly skilled. And the fact that she asked for mercy for rich and poor alike, it strikes me as so deep. I mean, that, that is so genuinely Christian to have mercy on everyone, regardless of their status. Well, some, some people have gone even further than that, and they say, and I agree with them, that this is a very good summary of the great principles of what the Christian monarchy should be. And yes. I agree with that, you see, because it's all based on a Christian foundation. Yes. Mercy, forgiveness, this, you know. This is true justice, as opposed to the fake justice, the inaccurate, the illegitimate justice we have purported, for example, in documents that say all men are created equal. No, they're not. They're not created equal, but they're treated equally by the presence of Christ. That is what oh, sanctifies yes. the relationship, and that is the legit. That's the truth. Yes, that's uh, I totally agree with you. But when you talk about the universal rights, that's only a very poor copy of what God did. Exactly. You know? but, but you see, 
And I thought that was very good to refer to these three requests which were not uh, um, addressed at the time because it shows the uh, particular uh, instructions she must have had to talk in these terms, which are so Christians. And by the way, and that's also a very important point, even though at the time it was not addressed straight away. Now, the, 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 wife, uh, the, the wife of the king, uh, I think it's Yolande, I can't remember her name exactly, Yolande uh, something, she uh, followed these precepts very carefully. And after 20 years, after the death of Joan of Arc, the, the kingdom was much, much more prosperous and stabilized thanks to her. And they had been applying the principles which Joan of Arc had been distilling, you know, providing yes. uh, while she was instructing the king in a sense, you see. So I think there was it was interesting to consider this. Uh, that's something you probably or your listeners haven't heard before, I guess. But, 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 Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program, the program Unmasking the Revolution. But before we unmask the revolution, we need to find out what existed before it, the true face of government, of godly government. We're talking about a young girl who became a special forces soldier straight off the farm, who was given incredible logic by the saints. Um, and she demonstrated this logic when questioned by what amounted to uh, wicked lawyers. And she saved France. So, sir, would you tell us about some miracles, I believe, that she was performed? Well, actually, uh, she performed a number of miracles, and I'm sure that all of them have not been recorded. But yes. uh, what we know, what, we, what you can find in the text, uh, is already quite telling about uh, the true nature of, of Joan of Arc. She had a, an uncompromising will on the side of God. She wanted to do, she was doing God's mission. 
And her voices told her so many things and she was guided by the, the voices all the time, I guess. Uh, this is my personal opinion. Now, she made predictions to the king. When she met the king during that Chinon episode, uh, as I told you on March the 8th, 1429, if I'm not mistaken, uh, she told him that he was about to lose the war because the, the, fr the, 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 the French were surrounded on all sides. On the southern side, you had the prince, the, I think it was the Black Prince, that was the region of Aquitaine, which, which was totally uh, dominated by the English. And yes. then you had the Nor Normandy and Brittany, I'm not sure about Brittany, but Normandy, and then the northern part of France was all in the hands of the English. And there was just St. Clave on the Loire, Loire River, where you have the, uh, the, the city of Orleans, which had to be defended at all costs. And she wanted to go and fight, and the, the, the king was a little bit reluctant because he was not sure about what she, he should do. The king, uh, in fact, had a very meek, uh, but also a very weak, should I say not meek, but weak uh, attitude here because uh, he was uh, listening to some of his courtiers and he was not sure about what he had to do. And she gave him uh, plenty of stamina, which, which he was lacking, I guess. So one of the predictions she made, which happened to be true two or three days afterwards, was she told him that she, he was going to lose uh, two battles. I think it was two battles. And the bat battles were lost. So it increased uh, her um, quality in the eyes of the king because he was able to do, she was able to do that, you see. Yeah. Now there's another episode which is worth telling is the episode concerning a sword. Now for some reason, uh, if, she, if you want to go to battle, you need to have an armor. So the king gave her an armor, gave her a stallion or some white horse, I guess. But he wanted to give her a sword and he said, she said, no, I'm not going to take your sword because St. Catherine has told me that I have to go and fetch such and such sword, which is hidden be behind an altar in a very small church. Does the sword exist today, sir? Do we? Unfortunately not. Do we have any records of it? I will give you some explanation. Oh, thank you. So you see, uh, and that's really something which came out of the blue because uh, nobody had heard about that sword. And in the, in the church in question, uh, the priest didn't know there was a sword. I think it was a, a, a church um, uh, in, um, which was uh, in um, for, for, uh, St. Catherine's Church somewhere. You know, I think it's uh, Fierbois in a, in a small city anyway, in a, in a small village. Yes, yes. And so they had, they had some uh, blacksmith king asked the blacksmith to go and check and he met the priest who didn't know anything about that sword and they dug behind the altar and in a, somewhere they opened they found a box and in the box they found the, uh, the, 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 the sword in question. Now at the time you know there were uh, there had been battles before and if the soldier that, uh, soldiers had managed to survive they would bring as a gift to St. Catherine or to the Virgin Mary a sword or something else, uh, you know, which belonged to them, which was dear to them as a homage, as they were paying tribute to uh, the Virgin Mary or to the saint for having spared his life, you see? So, the, so that sword was found. So that's another prediction which came true. And uh, of course, uh, that was a very important thing. And, and what is interesting about that sword is that 
she took that sword. It was the, the blacksmith uh, had to remove some dust and some uh, rust on the, on the sword. Yes. It was an operational sword. But you see, she was using the sword as she was using the banner. The sword was there just for people to see that she was wearing a sword, but she yes. never killed anybody. This is quite Christian too. She was uh, commanding her soldiers, asking them to go and fight. Now, it's also interesting to note that whenever she was with her soldiers around her, she asked them to have communion or to go to confession as soon as they could. And she was very, very angry if they started saying naughty words. So she was Christian from beginning to end, you see, in her education. And she wanted to wanted to educate all her soldiers too, you see. And herself, she never killed anybody, but she was wearing a sword as she was wearing the banner. And the banner she was wearing was a rallying sign. And on it, you had, I think it was Jesus uh, sitting, or a God, sitting on a throne. And you had the, the inscription, Jesus Maria, you see. So she... So she was not wearing the coat of arm of the king on that particular banner or, or, or yeah, she was, she was uh, fighting on behalf in the name of Jesus and Mary, which is very important because when the soldiers, the English enemies saw that particular banner, they were frightened because that, that maid managed to conquer without, uh, by, by the, the, the sheer power of, of, of her conviction, you see. And all the French soldiers were demoralized because they'd been losing so many wars. All of a sudden, they managed to uh, win two battles that were very important. There was one battle in a city called Pate, P-A-T-A-Y, which is very <laughs> famous in France because there, for some reason, the, the soldiers, the English soldiers had to flee. They lost about 2,000 men, apparently. And only a very six, high uh, number for combat in those days. And, uh, yeah, and, and the French only lost five, six soldiers. So that was another miracle, you see. Yes. And then Orleans, Orleans, she fought in Orleans. She, I think she was uh, uh, wounded and she recovered and then she went back fighting. And it gave plenty of uh, encouragement, encouragement to the soldiers who were doing the job. She was yes. only there to pr prod them, to, go th to, to, to help them uh, win the, 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 the battle, you see? Yes, indeed. So these are some of the powers she had. Now, another one which is not so well known, but who, which is very important for the beatification of that particular saint, is the fact that at one point she went into a village and there was a dead, there was an infant who had been dead for three days. And this is uh, something that can be checked because the, the, there's an inscription somewhere in a small city in France where you can still see the, 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 this episode which is narrated. And she, uh, she, she was asked to pray for that particular infant who was all black because he was dead for three, he had been dead for three days. And apparently while she was praying with other maids, the little infant was brought back to life and yawned and was and recuperated and his, his skin became whiter and he was resuscitated so they had time to baptize the child and then afterwards he died again 
And this is very important because you know when you want to have a beatification, there must have been some miracle before. Absolutely. That was the miracle which was invoked for, for Joan of Arc to become a saint and to be put on the altars in the French, uh, you know. In the, and that miracle uh, itself, that is, that is a complicated miracle, actually. Um, oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, uh, but still, that, that was the, uh, well, that, these are things that, have been, that I have read and which, are, uh, which have been authenticated. Oh, no, absolutely. I just wonder, um, being a practicing Catholic, I often contemplate miracles, and in contemplating this one, I wonder if there's an analogy between her miracle of bringing the, the infant back to life, baptizing it, and then the baby died in a state of grace, and what she did for, for France or for Western civilization. Is there an analogy there, I wonder? Well, I'm sure we can make one. I agree with you, because she resuscitated the, the Franks yes. and, the, and the French kingdom, and of course, the French, the, the, the Franks, and then the French, and the French nation is the first Christian nation in the world. Yes, indeed. And, uh, we, and why, was, why has it been so successful for so many centuries? Well, precisely because king, Jesus was the king of France. Yes. And Jesus was the one who was followed, you know, and his, all his teachings have been followed. Now, if you go to any village in France or any city or whatever the size of that city, you always have a church, of course, but you have also at the crossroad, you get plenty of crosses. And you have some little chapels and you have uh, uh, Calvaries and all these things. You know, it reminds us of our past and we shouldn't forget our past. And I read the other day something, or I heard rather, something which I think is very true. With the current globalization, which is uh, going uh, at a frantic, frantic pace, Yes. People want to find their roots. And they, uh, globalization is good up to a point, uh, past which people want to go back to their roots. It's like the, uh, the Latin mass. The Latin, well, I know it may be a controversial subject, but... Oh, not, not terribly. Yeah, it's interesting, very interesting to notice that uh, the Latin mass, which had been authorized all, over, all of a sudden, is followed mainly by young people. Exactly. And why do they do that? Because they want to find their roots. They want, they want to assimilate to those who were praying a few centuries back and, you know, to have the same attitude. I think this is, okay, I'm... I'm uh, no, no, you're, you're on target because the past, the past story, this is, this is very germane to our topic. The past offers real truth. And when I say truth, I'm not talking about an abstract uh, ideology or something. It offers real answers to the questions of life. What does modernism offer? Nothing but madness and insanity. And sooner or later, people, if they're not mad or insane, which a lot, very many people are today, I believe, I think they are legitimately insane. Our foes, especially the revolutionists, they're mad. People want, yeah. people want goodness and we're not gonna find it in the future. It's oh, no. the past. Yes, I agree with Sorry. you totally. I, I digress, please continue, sir. So on that particular line, I think the trads, you know, traditionalists like me, yes. uh, we very much like uh, the figure of Joan of Arc because he embodies so many things, so many virtues, so many Christian virtues, you see. That's something we can talk about a little bit later. It's so, true indeed. And let's, what, yeah. Go on. Yeah. So, so what I was just telling you here is only the, uh, the, the how shall I say that, 
is just to prepare you for what comes next <laughs> because uh, I wanted to set the stage for the most important thing in our French history, which is not known to anybody in France or which has only been rediscovered of late, but which reappeared in fact in the 19th century uh, through very uh, bizarre circumstances because there was a book in the uh, Vatican Library and uh, of course you have thousands of book in the uh, books in the Vatican Library and you know they've got very good records uh, going back ages and uh, it happened that an Italian count whose name I haven't got uh, here but uh, found, found that book and read it of course it's all in Latin yes yes and it's a book which is called Brevi uh, Breviarum Historiale and it, yes. Without going into all the details, because it's a very long and complicated his, uh, story and still very interesting to look at, this book contains an incredible, incredible testimonial about Joan of Arc. It's funny because this book was written, and we are absolutely sure about that, in, in 1428. And there's only seven of these books remaining in the world today. And in this book, you do not find the edition which we are interested in, because it's only the writer of that book, whose name is uncertain, although we think it's a bishop from France, yes. because he was very patriotic in what he said about Joan of Arc. The books were published in 1428, and then in 1429, Joan of Arc appears on the scene. So in one of the books which had been kept on the, in the Vatican Library, there's a manu manuscript edition where it talks about Joan of Arc. But the interesting thing is that it doesn't say everything about Joan of Arc because things are still going on. It doesn't know that the king is going to be crowned in Reims. It doesn't know that. The only thing he knows is that Joan of Arc has been able to defeat the English in the city of Orleans, which is a very important thing for him as well, because he's a French patriot, you see. Yes, so, And in that particular um, book, the Count, the Italian Count, read in Latin the, what was written. And there we have an incredible account of what took place uh, on a particular day on the 21st of June, 1429, because there you had three persons uh, uh, coming together. Yes. Two were present in, in, in their flesh and the other one was present in, 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 the, in heaven, so shall I say. So you had Jesus, uh, Joan of Arc and the king. Now, to understand this particular charter we'll refer to now, you have to know something else. Joan of Arc had enemies at the court of the king. Particularly, there were two. There was one guy who was named La Tremouille, who didn't like her at all. Because he was the, I think he was the commander-in-chief of the army of the king. And he couldn't understand that such a young lady should come and uh, evict him, you know? So he was not very nice with her. And whenever she wanted to talk to the king, he would always manage to avoid her talking to him. So she, but uh, what's happened is that she was victorious twice in Pate, as I've told you, and in Orleans. Yes. Now she was able to make a request again to the king, but she did it in a very clever way. She did it on the day where the, the Latremouille guy was not there. So he was not going to contradict her, you see? 
That was yes. very clever on his part, uh, on her part. So, that, so, so I want to read to you now this little passage. It's not very long. It's not even a, a one page long, but it's yes. really a telling uh, for all your listeners. So I'm just going to read this particular passage, and I think Please. we should make a few comments. And you are free to make your comments as well, of course. Yeah, indeed. Now, yeah, uh, on, the, on the 21st of June, 19, uh, 1429, the Maid of Orleans says to the Dauphin, the future King of France, as Charles VII, who has not been crowned yet. So this is what she, she says. Majesty, do you promise to give me what I'll ask you? So you see the way she asks the questions. She, she, she's been refuted before, so she's very careful. But she's got plenty, she carries a lot of weight because she's been victorious. And the king, as a result, is, is, as, as, is forced to listen to her and accept to some extent what she is going to ask from him. But the thing is, of course, he doesn't know what he's, she's going to request. Although, as I've told you in her th three requests before, she already talked about the donation, the fact that she, uh, he should give his, entrust his kingdom to the Lord. So he had already some inkling about yes. that. Yes. No, he was, she was going to, he was, he was really not sure she was going to talk about that, I'm sure. Anyway, so this is the question she asked. And, what, and then hesitatingly, the king finally accedes to this request. In other words, he is going to accept what she, uh, the, a promise, to make a promise. So this is her question again. Majesty, give me your kingdom. Isn't that a, an incredible question? Uh, uh, question? It's incredible. I mean, the... I don't think anyone could today appreciate what a statement that would have been. It can only be done because Jesus has asked, asked for yes. it. Yes. How could a, a young girl, uneducated or whatever, ask for such a thing? It's crazy. Anyway, she asked that question. And so, baffled, the king hesitates again. But not to renege on his words and overwhelmed by the supernatural leadership of Joan. He says, Yes. I give you my kingdom. This is incredible. So this can be considered as the first donation. The king is entrusting his kingdom to Joan, which is a stupid thing to say, um, could be considered as a stupid thing to do. But yeah. he does it. It shows, by the way, that he really is convinced about her and he he puts his faith in her as well. I think it shows that uh, it's, it's a very clever move on his part and uh, very sincere and uh, an incredible uh, thing to do. But remember, I think we are in a, we are in an abbey somewhere and the, uh, probably there, won't, there were not so many people around. But anyway, if, if they were courteous, they must have been very surprised. Yeah. So after that, Joan continues. This is not enough. The maid asks for a notary to drop a deed, which will then be solemnly signed by four, four of the king's secretaries. You see? So this is what she asks. Not only is she asking for the kingdom, but uh, very cleverly she wants it to be written down so that we have a record of that, you see? So yes. four secretaries are going to do that on behalf of the king. Then noticing the king becoming speechless, and embarrassed at what he has done, she adds, and she turns to the 
people were there and she says, here is the poorest knight of the kingdom of France. He has nothing left. Good Isn't Lord. that incredible? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Then earnestly talking all at once to the secretaries, Joan commands, write down, Joan hands the kingdom to Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing too? I think it is quite amazing. It's stunning. Stunning, you see. And this has been referred to as the second donation. So imagine now the, the kingdom has been handed over to John. She hands it over to her Lord, Jesus. And not long after that, Jesus hands back the kingdom to Charles. This is extremely, extremely important in my mind. Because you can see the movement here from one person to another and then back to the first one. Uh, it's like the Trinity in a sense, you see. We have three, there are all like a star with three, three branches. I don't know how to say that, but it shows, um, I think this is the most amazing document in the French history. And of course, nobody talks about it. <laughs> this is, uh, I think this is an amazing thing to, to, to consider, honestly. So what are the, the, the comments that can be made about this particular chart? It's been called a charter, by the way, but I would call it a deed. I would call it a, an official document. Now, we haven't been able to find the real document, unfortunately. Has it been damaged, destroyed? We do not know. It hasn't been found. But the authenticity of this, of this account is, has been proven. I'm not going to go into all the details because it's a very complicated thing, but I've got two books on that, which shows the authenticity. Uh, we know who the bishop was. He was from Cahors in the near Toulouse, uh, south of France. He was uh, living at the. He was uh, uh, living with at, at the at the with at the court of the Pope. I don't know how to say that Pope. I think it was Martin the Fifth at the time. Oh, Martin. you know this. Yeah. This reminds me. This is right after the Great Schism. Is this Martin the Fifth was uh, the compromised Pope after the Great Schism? Was he not? Well, that's a, well, actually. You're absolutely right, absolutely right, because yeah. there was there's something with the anti-pope as well. Yes, 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 you're right. Yes, absolutely. And anyway, uh, he was living, he was in that court, and he had been requested by that pope to write something about the creation of the world up to the present day. Which yes, was yes. 1428. Okay. It's fascinating. So, authenticity, although we're not going to debate this because it's too long and it's a little bit intricate, but it's worth uh, knowing that the authenticity Indeed. has been proven. Although, yes. unfortunately, we haven't been able to find the, the text, the document itself, unfortunately, which would be a miracle if it were to uh, reappear. Um, but anyway, this is the, the first comment I would make is that this is an incredible. Um, Charter. Now, the second thing is that we have to consider the characters involved here because they're all in, uh, as important. Of course, Jesus is the most important one because he decided, he decided to use that little shepherd for the, for, to, so that his will uh, would be uh, uh, obeyed. And uh, of course, he decided to give, to entrust afterwards the kingdom to Charles VII. As a result, he's definitely the legitimate heir to the throne. There's no doubt about that. He's the legitimate heir and he's the legitimate king. And so the, all the subjects should be, uh, of course, obeying the Lord Jesus and the king. You see? Yes. This, you, you, you have what we call the filiation here, you, the, line, the lineage, you know what In, I mean? 
Yeah, I know exactly. And indeed, what I'm starting to see in Joan of Arc is we're seeing a confluence of events uh, in this tumultuous time in Europe. And she, she's in the middle of every aspect of it. You yes, see what I mean? I, she's connected to all the events that are shaking Europe at this time. At, at which time? At her time, you mean? Yes, in her time. This would be the yes. mid-14th century, 15th century, yeah. So you see, so again, uh, for, for, for Jesus, Jesus decided to have her uh, as her main instrument to restore the legitimate king on, on the throne of France. It shows as well, first, that he is the real king of France. Jesus yes. is the real king of France. We never doubted that, but of course, it's worth saying it because nobody says it anymore. Uh, but it's Christ the, Christ the king. You know, you know what I mean? But I know exactly. King of France, Christ the king of France. I think it's an important point to consider. It's critical, Rather, sir, and we were coming up on a break here, but I, I did want to add that the restoration of the legitimate king of France is not, you know, we're not talking about the king of Denmark here. This is not just no, a monarchy. This is law and order in the yes. best sense of the word in the world. The right yes. order of things. Yes, I agree it's, with you totally. Yes. And uh, this is something for us to ponder because if we look at France again, and if we look at the history of Western civilization, when France had a legitimate monarch on the throne, descended from Charlemagne, descended from, well, the from Christ, well, instituted by Christ, the world was a more righteous place. And you can trace the, the actual moment of the revolution to what really has become a world that is spiraling out of control. And it's only going to spiral further and further out of control. That's so we will take a break right now and we'll return. The legitimate monarchy. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Um, we're in the final segment, and legitimate monarchy represents the true monarchy of Jesus Christ. And we will finish our story of this heroic 
this heroic girl, this heroic saint. Sir, uh, would you please continue? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, just a few words about Joan of Arc again, because yeah. as I've told you, we in that particular triple donation we have three characters and uh, Jesus is the main one of course but of course of course Joan of Arc plays a very uh, she's instrumental and she plays a very important role in that particular donation and she's all of a sudden queen of France as well while she didn't have to marry a prince to become queen she was queen because of the will of the king and she was acting on behalf of God of course of Jesus you see she did she didn't have to marry, that's for sure. Now, also something interesting here, because you, if you remember, we talked, uh, we had a special episode about Clovis. Yes. And if you remember, Clovis' uh, turning point in his career or in his life or in his fate was the famous Battle of Tolbiac. And yes. during the Battle of Tolbiac, he decided to convert to Christendom. You know, he was, he was a pagan like so many others. Yes. He was the representative of Rome in a sense, but he was also fighting the Romans or the Gallo-Romans, but then he decided to convert. And of course, his wife played a very important role in that, just like the Bishop Saint Remy, if you remember. I, now here, I can, I can see that uh, Joan of Arc is, in a sense, Joan of Arc is renewing the promise that Clovis made to have a French Christian kingdom. And thanks to her, thanks to her, the French nation and the French kingdom is going to be uh, re 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 remain Catholic. Uh, and of course, if the English had invaded, had been, uh, had been able to capture the whole of France, we would have possibly converted to Angli Anglicanism. I don't know. <laughs> I cannot imagine that. But you see, she, in a sense, I can see that she renewed Clovis's promise to convert to Christianity. Uh, okay, so I think that's an interesting point to consider as well. Now, what else can I say about her? Uh, she was queen for a very, very short amount of time. But what a queen, what a, what a, what a character, what an incredible person to, to consider. If you look at all her uh, virtues, her faith, her courage, uh, she was totally abandoned to the will of God, in my, in my understanding. What she did, she did it because she wanted to please God and, and do his will. In other words, she put God in before herself. And she even went uh, as far as dying for a cause. And who is able, who can do such a thing today? That's yes, exactly. And let us take a moment, sir. This is yes. a wonderful opportunity to blow away one of those myths about monarchy, that it's um, especially legitimism that, oh, it's just people who inherit titles from their parents. No, no, no. It's oh, about no. the institution of virtue and how that is passed down. Aristocracy itself means the best rule of the best people. This isn't best yes. because you're rich. As a matter of fact, many aristocrats okay. were not wealthy at all. It is virtue, virtue, virtue. You certainly have noticed that when God decides to intervene, he is always uh, uh, taking instruments who are very poor, like yes. children, people who have no education, and he fashions them to his will, you see. Indeed. Or and in the case of Job. Never the uh, rich aristocrats. No. No, and in the case of the, the rich aristocracy. The real aristocracy yes. is not based on money. It's based on virtues. Yes, And exactly. Christian virtues for us, you see. So what I think is very important is to remember that she had, she had, she decided to stand and fight for her ideas, which was to defend the will of God. 
and uh, she did it uh, to the price of her own life and uh, that's something to consider she had such an incredible courage you see she threw herself in the battle into the fray she didn't bother she she, she was many times she was wounded she recuperated and then she went back back fighting because she wanted to do it for the grace of god you know so it's an inc an incredible uh, uh, generous i would say she's a very generous character gen generosity of heart innocence justice all these things are important yes. the virtues themselves yes absolutely so this these are the comments i would make about the joan of arc as queen of france and she deserved it she absolutely deserved it now the third protagonist here is charles the seventh now charles the seventh who was um, undecided unsure of himself was was totally his legitimacy was restored thanks to the two other characters in that particular scene and uh, of course he, he as a result you know he was he gained legitimacy and just after from what I have read, just after that donation or the day, the day after or two days later, he went to see his troops and they decided to go to Reims for the coronation. Now, going to Reims was not an easy task either because you had to cross enemy lines again, you see. Yes. They decided to do it and he was crowned. And afterwards, as I've told you in a previous episode, the real, the real touch was at work. He had been sacred. He was the real king. He had, he had this. He was crowned, and he had been given, you know, with the he had received the uh, the anointment. He was yes. the real king, and with his royal touch, he also managed to cure some uh, rheumatoid uh, people at the time. Yes, the, the scrofula. Scrofula. Yeah, scrofula. Yeah. So again, um, I think this was worth uh, saying. So he was then. Uh, we can say that uh, Charles VII was a representative of Jesus on earth, and yet he had been chosen by Jesus for that particular purpose. Exactly so, and uh, yeah. not, not to diverge from Joan of Arc, but how is it that we've forgotten that the former rulers of France, the kings of France, healed people? And these are people we are supposed to despise, that heal people who need healing? Incredible, is it not? Uh, yes. the, uh, the, the last real, for me, the, the, the last legitimate king, of course, is, as I've told you in a previous episode that we recorded, is Charles X. Now, Charles, Charles X, by the end of his uh, life, was very pious. Yes. At the beginning of his life, he was not pious at all, and he was a merry, uh, merry boy. You know, he was he was taking advantage of indeed, me. but nothing malicious. He was just a no, prince. No, nothing malicious, yeah. and he was the one of the preferred uh, friend of Marie Antoinette. By yes, the way. they were very good friends. But by the end of his, his life, he had become very pious, and uh, he well, he had the real touch. Now, if you consider afterwards Napoleon or Napoleon the Third, I mean, or if you consider Louis Philippe, they never yeah, yes. were never crowned. They were never crowned, and they never they never healed anybody. Yeah, Louis Philippe may have killed people by his touch. I'm being oh, no, kidding. I'm no, that's something yeah. else. So I, I, I just I, I, would I, like to conclude here by please. by saying a word about a very important person. We haven't mentioned him yet. But, but we certainly shouldn't forget him because he played a, he was very instrumental in the rehabilitation which took place in the 19th century about uh, Joan of Arc. And he was a priest and his name is Erol. 
uh, is very well known in the Vatican circle because he wrote five or six books, 500 pages each about Joan of Arc and he knew absolutely everything about her and is the definite uh, ultimate um, reference when we talk about Joan of Arc. And even today, I don't think uh, his work remains extremely important. And this is what he had to say about this particular triple donation. So I'm quoting here. Had Charles, Charles VII and his successors understood, they would have encased the magnificent parchment in gold and silk. They would have laid gems around it because they had no similar jewels in their treasures and would have, and would have read and meditated on, on it every day. Not only would they, have, would they still be on the throne today, but the universe would be in Jesus' arms, and it would have been France who would have placed it there. So I think that's a very interesting uh, conclusion. I uh, think. Show, showing that uh, the even the king at the time was not aware of the importance of that particular um, notary uh, deed where the, uh, the, the kingdom is entrusted to Jesus, and Jesus are first entrusted to Indeed. Mark, Indeed. And it's. Yes, Charles, I'm reminded as we sit here and speak that the, the Charles VII and this heroic saint, Joan of Arc, this, this patriot fighter, they didn't exist in a vacuum. And already at this time, and as St. Paul tells us, the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking those who we may devour. And oh, yeah. yes. throughout this entire period of these remarkable saints who did so much for the kingdom of France, for Western civilization, for the church, the enemy didn't rest. So we have the enemy take different forms, but always assaulting the kingdom of France. And time and again, God raises up. He raised up Clovis to defend it. Uh, he raised up Joan of Arc, St. Joan of Arc to defend it, St. Martin, St. Geneva. Um, absolutely. Where are we today, sir? Well, we are in a very desperate situation in, in a sense in France at the moment, because uh, You've heard about the yellow vest. We've, I think we've talked about it. Already. Perhaps. I've not heard. Could you explain it briefly? Well, the yellow vest is a very, very strange movement. Uh, it's a political movement, but it's the, uh, this, the, the, the problem is that in France at the moment, uh, or let's say for the last 30 years, yes. people have been uh, overburdened with taxes. <laughs> yes. And... Uh, as one famous French sociologist uh, wrote about 20 years ago, he made, a, he made a diagnosis of the French situation, which is absolutely uh, telling and true. He said that France was divided more or less into three zones. You have the uh, Paris, or you have the main uh, capital, or you have the main cities in France yes. that are fairly prosperous, where you get all the, uh, all the rich and wealthy. Uh, there's a gentrification process going on there. People are very well, they, they live good lives, they've got good salaries. They're, they are, you know, civil servants, uh, high civil servants. So they yes, can civil servants, them. indeed, well said. Yeah, and they, uh, they are as well uh, managers of big companies anyway. Uh, so they live in the, in, the, in the nice districts. That's the, f the first uh, area where you found them. Then you have the suburbs. In the suburbs, the suburbs have been subsidized for years to the tune of billions of French, uh, you, French francs and then euros. Yes. And that, that's the second, um, 
shall I say, crown, or you have the first, what we would call the first crown or the center. The center would be the capital of a, of, of a region. Yes. Or of, of not necessarily Paris. It could be any big town. There you have people who've got some means, okay? Yes. And then around them, you have people who have, haven't got so much means, but they are paid uh, with subsidies uh, to live in their uh, districts or to live in their uh, uh, skyscrapers or Indeed. well it's not skyscrapers actually but uh, uh, social dwellings that Indeed you, you make a good point and it's the opposite in America where in America the suburbs tend to be the repository of wealth and the inner city tends to be the subsidized but it's the same phenomenon Yeah but let, let me just uh, finish Please. this particular uh, reasoning which is based on what a sociologist called Gilly or Gilly I don't know how to pronounce it so wrote it about 20 years ago and it's so true so you have three categories those who are living in the center those living in the suburbs and those living in the countryside but the problem is that if you live in the countryside you need a car and if you need a car you have to put some petrol in it and as and, and the Macron has been so silly as to raise taxes uh, all of a sudden and it goes on top of all the other taxes we have to pay. And you have to, uh, taxes uh, for, 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 for gasoline or petrol, but you ha also have taxes if you take the toll away. You have taxes if you, uh, you have cameras on the road and if you drive too, 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 too fast, then you have, you have a, a fine. So all, all these things are added one after the other. Uh, makes us uh, reach a point where the people are fed up. You know, whatever their uh, situation in life, they are fed up. And I think this uh, movement, which started uh, on Facebook, I guess, has been incredibly popular. But the thing is, it's it's turning a little bit nasty now because the yellow vests are not are decent fairly uh well let's say low middle class people yes. or uh, people who haven't got much money the backbone yeah. of our nations yeah absolutely absolutely and the problem is that uh, in the cities there have been riots now the riots always come from people who try to take advantage of the civil unrest yes they're not yellow vests themselves but then as they are hidden they've got a mask you cannot see who they are the virus revolution Yes, absolutely. And these people have been wreaking havoc in the cities. So now the population is turning against the yellow vest because you can see that, you know, it's, it's crazy. And that's very good for the government because the government yes. can somehow, you see these, these yellow vests, they are wreaking havoc. To the, the, uh, and particularly at this time of the year when we're going, to have, we're going to have Christmas uh, holidays and people are supposed to spend in the shops, they won't be able to do that because you can go to the city center. You see? Yeah. It's exactly, so, the, yeah. so the situation is is really we're in a in a very very strange situation at the moment. Now some people would say pre-revolutionary, and it's interesting to note that some people have been praying Joan of Arc. As incredible as it may seem, I've I've the, seen really? on the on the uh, internet. I've seen on a on a website, people were. Uh, Go, pr praying in uh, Don Remy's chapel or somewhere in France to Joan of Arc because they are desperate to see. Now, uh, what's going to come out of all this, I do not know. But what I can tell you is that Macron is really despised. He is really despised. I don't want to go into politics too much, but yes. he was elected in a very strange way. He is not popular. He's never been popular. The fact that he has married... Um, somebody who's 25 years former old. Former teacher. 
yeah it is a something to can to to ponder i don't want to go too much into that because yes uh, it's that's it's, not uh, it's you know it's gutter politics but but it's still some, to, to some extent i can understand people and uh, uh it's very difficult honestly if you have a you see for example i'll take i'll give you a very simple example please if you <clears throat> are living in the suburbs if you are from a minority extraction you will get extraction you will get well let's say uh, uh, with all the subsidies shall we say i don't know maybe because they've got plenty of children they will get six or seven hundred euros to live for the month now a poor farmer who lives in the countryside only has 350 or 400 euros for the whole whole month are you, you those live. are accurate numbers well yes and you cannot live on such a you no. have the, the suicide rate among the farmers is extremely high in France. Oh just my God. like the suicide rate for the policemen. Wait, wait, wait. They are, are ill-considered. The farmers in France are, are really, uh, to, really, I, I pity them a lot, honestly. Oh my God. Because they work hard. There are those who work hard. You know, you know what a farmer's life is. I do indeed. You never stop. You always have to do something. There's no vacation. There's no but vacation. the farm, the farmers have... lease. That's the backbone of civilization. Yeah, and that's why now you know the police is going to go on 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 the, on the strike. So the, all the of police. a sudden, the Assembly Nationale has decided to give them some uh, bonus. But the the French um, apparently the French government owes the police. 278 million euros of uh, wages that have not been paid. So you can see through that, that the situation is extremely delicate and who knows where, it, where we are going. Now, I suspect that things will calm down because we come to holiday season. Yes. But what about spring? In France, in spring, you always have riots. So that's something really? We'll see next year. Yes, 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 unfortunately. In the summer? I, in, uh, no, no, I'm talking I'm about spring. It all yeah. starts in spring. In spring, you have the 1st of May, you know, the Labor Day, 1st of Communist May. Communist holiday. And then the, the people go on, start going on strike. And the students go on strike at the same time. And then, but the thing is, if the police decides to stay on strike, the regime may fall. Because it, from my own understanding, without the, the police, you have to bring in the army. Or if you have the, the army, we are, army. Different, we are in a different situation, aren't we? Yes. Well, that, that I, would I, be... I hope, I hope we're not going to reach that stage because uh, I'm I'm, I think it's, uh, it's extremely dangerous. Well, that's it's, if it it's inevitable in ways, Monsieur. I mean, I speak as an American, but America is on the same trajectory. We began as a monarchy too, uh, even though it was the British one. But we're we're now at the point where you see we discussed this before, and in our pamphlets, the on our website www.fleurdelisclub-dot.org, people will see this. Revolutionism always increases. It's a positive feedback cycle because, yes. it, like a drug user. The first time you take a dose, oh, yes. yes, usually you need more and more extreme things each time. So mm. it's inevitable that there will be a continuation of this revolution. We're seeing the horrible groundwork for it with the Antifa movement, with the, the people who wear masks on their head and burn cars. Um, and if the police take, if the police were to go on strike, I would be, I would be terrified. I couldn't imagine such a thing. I couldn't imagine. You mean it's, in America? You mean in America? 
America, I don't know. See, this is to touch lightly on politics. Um, now, this, the two things they say always to avoid in any kind of conversation um, on the talk radio would be one, <laughs> gun control, and two, abortion, right? You never talk about those two things. But that said, I think in America, with access to firearms, it would, well, it would either be a lot worse or a lot less, uh, less, less dangerous. But I don't know. But the chaos is coming. In wherever we are, in what country we're in. One, one worry which I have had for years uh, is that the French haven't got the right to have a rifle. We, we are yes. not supposed to have any weapons in our homes. Yes. And this but is, if, this you go, if you go in the suburbs where you yes. get all the migrants or the, uh, the emigre or the whatever, uh, they've got plenty of rifles. But of the police course. cannot go there because it's too dangerous to go. Because so what yes. is going to occur if there's some form of revolution going on? They can do whatever they want. The French won't be able to defend themselves. Don't you think this is it's, strange? It'll take us right back to the days of King Clovis, monsieur. It'll be a world right then. Um, it'll be barbaric. Yeah, we are now, we're, and this is so critical for our listeners to understand. This isn't a joke. This isn't a, just a historical no, it's discussion. Not a joke. It's not a joke. We're, we're on the border of the abyss. And if yes, we don't I do something, yes. God helps them, yeah. helps themselves. And let, I would pray, and I would ask our listeners to pray, that we have another Joan of Arc, because God yes. can work miracles, as we've discussed, yes. and let us pray for one. And, and yeah, if I may just please. add one thing, I totally agree with you, and I think we should pray. And the, the power of prayers is incredible, although yes. we did not notice it, but I'm sure it is incredible. Now, the, the second thing is that last year, I don't know whether I've told you that, I think I have, but uh, it's worth repeating. There was an auction in England, and for uh, centuries, for centuries, the ring of Joan of Arc had been kept in, a, in an English aristocratic family. And then it went on the market, it was sold. Now, when, when they decided to sell that ring where, uh, through an auction house, I do not remember the name, maybe it was Christie's, I'm not sure. Mm. It was published, but uh, in the, it didn't appear in the French papers. And it's only through, it's very strange, this. It's only through a Chinese. <laughs> this is an incredible thing, honestly. Yes. Uh, one of, uh, a person who's, who, who is very interested and who has been working for years and years on Joan of Arc, noticed in, a, in a, the translation of a Chinese newspaper that the ring would be sold, uh, the ring of Joan of Arc would be sold in London. And nobody had talked about it in France. And it's only through that person that we became aware that the ring was about to be sold, but only oh. two or three weeks afterwards, there had been no publicity to speak of. No adverts about that, you see, Incre through a communist paper. Yeah. And, and this is an incredible Good thing. Lord. So what's happened, what's happened is that the guy who saw that, and if you go on YouTube, you will find this, of course, in French. And the guy um, had no money, but he had good contacts. And he contacted the only person who was able to buy that ring. And he told him, be very careful, the, the auction, the bids are going to go high, very, very high. So you need a treasure. You need plenty of money to, to, tr to, to, to make sure you get that, that ring. And the auction went high as well. 300,000 euros for that ring. Now, the ring has been authenticated. Uh, some people disagreed, but on the whole, it 
it has been authenticated. And on the ring, you have Jesus Maria, just like on the banner, you see? It's a very yeah. interesting thing. And it's, I don't know if it's not, sil could be silver, I don't know. But that ring, and so the ring finally uh, was uh, purchased by, by Philippe, de, Philippe de Villiers, who's a very f famous uh, and very, um, very, uh, well, a uh, uh, very good politician. He's one of the politicians I prefer on the French scene, but uh, yes. he's also very famous for other things, but uh, he's a very good manager, but that's another story. And so he got that ring, but before getting the ring, you know what? They had to, get, they had to obtain the consent of the Queen of England. Really? Yes. And uh, the Queen decided to let it go. Because she said in her letter, I think she wrote, she didn't want the battle to start again. All over again. <laughs> That's clever. That was a very good answer. Because yeah. they, they could have decided not to relinquish the, the ring. Yeah, that's that because it, it it's a it's a national treasure. Well, let us, let us let us have that as our analogy that the truth exists even though it is purposely hidden from us in the West. Um, oh, the truth will come out, and that things that miracles from the past can translate into miracles in the present. And let us keep that in mind as we as we brave on and discuss the horrors of the revolution, which uh, oh yes, which have made our world a nightmare world. But maybe, maybe with hope, uh, as we say on this program, I'm sure, you know, on the road ahead, there is a way back home. And it's, uh, we're able to travel it if we wish. The choice is ours. So I wish to thank you for your time today, sir. It's been a riveting program. Um, thank you, sir. Bye-bye, sir. Bye-bye. Take care.